Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm lovely and, and quite excited because uh, uh, we get to talk about the Smithsonian for another podcast episode. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and with us uh, is our good friend uh, and colleague, Eric Johnson, uh, uh, from the VCU Libraries. Um, and, and, and as we've discussed previously, uh, Eric uh, and his fine staff, God bless them, have been dealing with Nia and I now for multiple years. Um, they are the fine folks uh, who make sure that our podcast episodes actually get like posted and shared with you all. Um, so um, uh, all of our handiwork would uh, 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 not exist uh, without their fine efforts. So uh, we're uh, one, thanks Eric um, uh, for that work, but also two, thanks for joining us again uh, to share your knowledge and, um, and enthusiasm about the Smithsonian. Okay, which actually it's not the Smithsonian, it's like multiple Smithsonians, which we discussed in the previous episode. Um, I, I believe, Nia, where we left off, we just talked about the creation of the Smithsonian, what led to it. Okay, and I think we were about ready to launch into a discussion of, okay, so how did the Smithsonian grow, change, and other kinds of fun, interesting, controversial stuff that has happened with it. Yeah, I want to ask a specific question, actually, if it's okay. Um, I'm in, intrigued by, okay, so um, Eric played along with how Augie and I usually do this, this podcast, which is he made notes, right? He made uh, notes for us to follow, which Augie usually does the research notes for our podcast. I know that's weird because I'm the research librarian, but I like leaning on Augie. Um, <laughs> and in this case, I like leaning on Eric. But there's a note here about the Smithsonian at wartime. Yeah. And I yeah. am totally intrigued by the, that's by the way, in case y'all were wondering, that's all the note says. So <laughs> it's, it's not like these are, you know, like I get a preview of what Eric's going to say, which is cool because now I get to hear it firsthand. But well, I mean, Nia, one of the reasons why I like Eric's notes, because his notes are like my notes, right? Because Nia goes ahead and says she leans on me. But a lot of my notes are like four or five words on a bullet point, which are designed to remind me to say to go ahead and mention something. So Nia, God bless her, goes ahead and says, "So Augie, you got in your, you know, <laughs> your your notes, blah blah blah. What's that about, right?" <laughs> yeah. So now I'm saying that to Eric. So what's like, that about? So you got this thing, and what? Okay. Of course, embarrassing is. So Wait, reminding people who who may not have remembered the Smithsonian was founded in the in 1818 ish. Well, it was no, founded in 1846. Okay. 1846. The Columbian the Institute before yeah. that. And then there's right. money involved and there's pains and sorrows. But 1846 puts us prior to the Civil War. Right. So is is that is the Smithsonian have something to do with the Civil War? 
So yeah, it's interesting kind of history. The So some of the supporters of the original idea of the Smithsonian were in fact Southern, you know, senators, representatives. And so of course they were friends of the founding director, Joseph Henry, um, Jefferson Davis was one of those, you know, who supported their sort of vision for the Smithsonian. And so as of course, you know, 1850, especially onward, there was a lot, a lot, shall we say, a lot of national debate around the question of slavery and expansion and all these kinds of questions. Um, the Smithsonian was pretty neutral. They just sort of, he, you know, and, and understandably, Joseph Henry's idea was, I'm just going to sort of not talk about it either way. Like, we will just, we will continue okay. to do the work that we do. We're not going to sort of get into politics. He was just trying to avoid politics like any good, you know, civil servant type. Which, side note, Library of Congress also makes a point of doing. The Library of yeah. Congress, when you do research there, makes a point of doing as neutral, like when they do research for Congress, they present those papers, which, by the way, if you're looking for them, the Congressional Research Service puts those papers out and you can find them from the GPO, uh, government publishing office. But they are intended to be a neutral, that, like they're not picking sides. But, because but if the Library of Congress picks sides, then you're in trouble when the sides change. But that's part of the difficulty, right, Eric? Okay, I mean, we're, we're going to touch, touch upon this later on in the podcast episode. But, you know, we're talking about institutions, okay, that can have a huge impact on the public's perception of the country and its history and its culture. And a lot of people look for those institutions to go ahead and be quote unquote, honest, truthful, et cetera. But in so doing, they end up having to wade into political battles, right? Right. I mean, you mentioned something that me and I've talked about in numerous podcast episodes. Okay, civil servants are supposed to be neutrally competent. But in doing their jobs, almost inevitably, they're going to wade into these disputes. Right. right. And that's one of those tensions, right? I mean, the Smithsonian had a laudable purpose, right? Okay. The development and diffusion of knowledge, right? Right. On the surface, that doesn't seem to be political. But then when you have something like the Civil War, okay, where some of your biggest proponents in getting it created are now leaving the country. Okay? Right, secessionists. Right. Right. They are secessionists, right? right? Okay, and you're and, trying to go ahead and be neutral. And you know, Mr. Henry's <laughs> like, we're not leaving the country. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure he this just- This is fascinating. I, I can yeah. see where he would want to stay out of it as much as he could. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting that I saw related to their time during the Civil War itself, because of course, you know, the lead up is one thing. Once war happens, secession happens, you know, that's a, a sort of a whole different level. But they didn't display the American flag at all during, which I think is really interesting. So really? Because he just didn't want that to appear to be this supporting the union sort of supporting the union which i was like that is totally fascinating wow because on the other hand ultimately they did i mean the the like the government came to them for multiple reasons looking for different kinds of support um they wanted 
you know, I mean, Joseph Henry was like, I know it's wartime. I really want the science to keep going. And, and we may circle back to the fact that he was definitely the research side, like the increase in knowledge. And then his assistant secretary, Spencer Baird, was sort of the diffusion of knowledge person. Like he was all about the collections and displaying stuff and that kind of thing. But Joseph Henry during the Civil War is like, I, you know, like the idea that war might shut down this scientific sort of institution was sort of anathema to him. He just felt like that, you know, that what a terrible outcome that that would be when, you yeah. know, what we all need is this continuing kind of increase in knowledge. I um, agree with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that's been well, the case. What kind in a of lot scientist of, was he? So he, he was basically a physicist, we call him now. He was a natural philosopher um, <laughs> at, at um, whatever, the University of New Jersey, which became Princeton University yeah. so uh, okay. before he became... Um, so it really was like, his life's work right. to, to do science. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. okay, so Mr. So, Baird, so. was his jam the sort of y'all should come over and look at what we have because it's totally fabulous and you should feel like you could give us something if you wanted to well or his, money his if you big wanted jam to. he was he was as he was often called the collector of collectors like he was the one who sort of contracted that's too strong a word um agreed with collectors across the country that you go out into the field you collect bugs and butterflies and rocks and bones and send them to us you know that that is what we will do and of course that's of the world unite right okay he's a hoarder yeah okay (laughs) i mean i mean every museum needs to have that person right right. that person who's who can go ahead and see a collection of for instance bugs and say this would be a great display okay in this wing of our museum for these reasons. Right. Well, and to be the institution that other institutions check against when they find something. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, cause there has to be an authority on bees, right? right? Is this a new bee species? Is this a, or is this just a bee with, I, I don't know, a, a disease or whatever that makes it purple? Right. Or, or is this suddenly a new purple bee and oh my goodness. So I'm assuming that part of what those institutions were trying to do was build authority Absolutely. style. Yeah. yeah. Collection. A, a type specimen is what that's typically called, a type specimen collection, where yeah. it's like we have the definitive version of every species that we can do for exactly that purpose so that other things can be compared and we can figure out is this just to say a new species or an illness in a past species or you know is there change in atmospheric conditions because now we can check the wood that is you know 400 years old against the wood that was recently you know cut down or that kind of thing i mean so lots and lots of different work but that was exactly what Spencer Baird was trying oh, okay. to build okay. know, in essence. So, but so anyway. they were they so their their purposes pretty worked worked pretty well together. They did. I mean, they weren't uh, really at cross purposes right. too much. Right. I mean, Joseph Henry always sort of felt like that stuff wasn't really needed. I mean, like he he liked <laughs> the idea. I think of the the specimen collection, but the display of all that that sort of you know like you don't really need to worry about. Like he wanted it for research purposes, right? Uh. You know. Um, he, he didn't he want people traipsing through his lab looking at stuff. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you're most engaging in, 
we're almost engaging in stereotypes, uh, listeners, right? You know, because for those of us who work with scientists, okay, you know, they frequently are like, okay, how's this going to go ahead and help us learn more about X, okay? And how it gets presented or how it might develop, be developed or branded or sold or, you know, commercial aspects, okay, that's not their concern, right? Okay, but for, you know, the rest of us who might be curious, might be interested, it's those folks that do the second part, okay, who bring us in, right? Right. Who go ahead and say, yes, you guys should be interested um, uh, in our collection of trees, okay, (laughs) from, you know, Western force, because it highlights this particular phenomenon, right? Okay, you guys should pay attention to Archie Bunker's chair, okay, from All in the Family, okay, because it was one of the first TV shows who quite clearly dealt with these issues, right? It was more than just a chair. It's the chair of a character, okay, who helped revolutionize American television. So right. this thing is okay. important for us right. for some yeah. reason. Right. And so. when you go to the Air Museum, Air and Space Museum, then the the changes in propeller shape, wing shape, right? Like all of that is showing you that the more and more we understand science, the better and better we build machines that, that have get these us purposes. from one place to another. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, the con- we didn't start off with the Concord. That was not the first plane that would have been awesome but the first plane was was basically a a rickety barn more or less right that kind of went floppity 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 and then immediately went onto the ground bang and and right and we had been as humans up in the air for the first time of our own power and not throwing ourselves off of something tall which we had done before but you know this was getting off the ground and going which is really awesome but so so we have we have civil war do we have other okay first of all let me just say the flag that i think i saw was a revolutionary flag and so you're telling me that somebody just folded that up and put it in a chest somewhere and said we'll get back to this in a few years that's right well what the the flag i meant was just yield standard current american flag on a pole in front of the building right like, oh you know, okay okay so kind, yeah not not the star spangled banner which of course we all now see there the ginormous you know that was flown to baltimore fort mchenry you know all that kind of stuff okay not that one i mean okay. just oh okay the one out like, front where they're regular like flag out front just we're just gonna be quiet i mean and what had happened during the civil war of course is the government's like all these you know wars happening now people so we need space yeah. so w- one of the things that happened was was the you know government officials came to the smithsonian and said basically can we have your first floor because we have to put all these clerks somewhere and you know, they ended up agreeing with that. The first thing the feds, the, the government had wanted was actually to, to have it be a um, kind of a, they wanted to bill it troops there. They wanted to put troops 
into there just because they're trying to put them places. And Joseph Henry sort of said, maybe no. we could be an infirmary, like a little bit uh... of science <laughs> kind of related to it. And then what ended up happening was they put in government clerks in there. Um, which which makes know, sense because does. if he had had troops, then there was the potential for warfare within the building. Yeah, like, I mean, the Smithsonian could have become a, a target uh, right. of, yeah, of the Confederate uh, uh, army. Yeah. Right. Which I'm sure he was like, no, 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 no. Let's not, let's not do that. So are there other wartime activities that the so beyond the Civil in? War? Yeah, the, well, the the other one, just thing to mention real fast in the Civil War that they're sort of famous for is that oh, okay. Joseph Henry did introduce Thaddeus Lowe, who had the lighter-than-air balloon, you know, flown by the Smithsonian, and basically introduced him to Lincoln as like a, a sort of military um, inventor for all intents and purposes. And so that started this kind of air corps idea for the Union Army, where they had balloons where they could float up and see troops really you know, down below, I didn't... Oh, telegraph down out of the balloon <gasps> down to <laughs> i didn't know they had that yeah so that was there you oh go. sorry my ignorance is showing that was but not the cool smithsonian of course making that happen but it was sort of this introduction that he was famous for um but yeah world war one you know is the same kind of idea you know when it when it rolled in where what they really wanted to do was um kind of do war related science for the government you know whether that's like testing um fluid you know sort of fluid mechanics or a you know um trajectory of projectiles you know and all that kind of stuff so they were doing science sort of for the government that happened both in world war one and world war two as well um mm -hmm. world war one is interesting because the um um the secretary of the Smithsonian at the time, his son was killed as he was he was flying for a French unit and was shot down behind German lines in World War One, and so there was sort of a you know World War One touched the Smithsonian uh, family in a way that it sort of hadn't previously, I think, um, which is which is kind of wild. Yeah, and I realized actually I think I was talking about the clerks, and that's really World War One was when clerks rolled into the Smithsonian. Civil War was mostly this, you know, infirmary possibility, did a little bit of, of science for the Union cause. Um, and then World War II, again, science, the big thing for the Smithsonian was their expertise at that point in the Pacific and Pacific theater and just sort of, because now this was this world war in a, you know, including these areas of the Pacific that most Americans didn't know a whole lot about. Smithsonian had all these experts that could talk language, <laughs> culture, um, strange things like there's, you know, sort of the idea. They, they, of course, weren't allowed to talk about what they helped the government with, but there was um, some, there, somebody said that there was a knowledge of um, shrimp, like breeding roots helped submarines figure out how to maneuver, you know, into Pacific you know, between Pacific islands because the Smithsonian had this knowledge and they could share it out and that went out to the war effort. Um, one of the other things that always happens with these kinds of things and has happened through sort of the centuries of war is the idea of having scientists accompany military units into new places so that they can kind of quick do some science <laughs> while 
this unit is in this new place. Right. Take and so samples that happens through and measure things. As well. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, we will gather what knowledge we can as we go. So, so, yeah. so I think of it as a museum, but it is equally or more a scientific endeavor. Like right. there's constant right science being done uh, it, as as bill and i would say science um right because he always <laughs> says it with an exclamation point um i love bill and i but so so it's almost like the being the being the attic is sort of the afterthought not afterthought but but not the main purpose right the I mean, main purpose Eric, of the you, smithsonian about is the science tension. Yeah, there, there's a there's a tension there. I mean, in in, in a lot of times, tension is not bad. Okay, right. I mean, from tension comes some really you know good stuff, you know, some really cool stuff. Right. But um, you know, ha have you seen, for instance, um, that kind of uh, tension um, hurt the Smithsonian at all? Um, that's an interesting kind of way to think about it. I mean, it's, I don't know that hurting it would be the way I might say it. There are definitely, you know, times where each approach is a little more ascendant okay. than the other, you know, kind of through time, but really it has, I mean, it, it more or less settled into this realization that it is indeed both of these things, you know, yeah. all along. I think part of the the bigger tension in terms of being a negative impact are things like the collections, like I mentioned earlier, collections growing so quickly that it outstrips their ability to hold on to and preserve it in anything like a sane sort of museum grade way. And that's, of course, you know, we talked at the beginning of this about how we may, you know, dive into the expansion of the Smithsonian. And one of the things that that comes out of is that we have huge growth in various kinds of collections. And so therefore start to, instead of having one kind of national museum, which had started at the Smithsonian Castle, what we call the castle now, <clears throat> and then grew in 1881 to a building next door um, to a, what is now the Arts and Industries Building, part of the Smithsonian. It was just the National Museum Building that was bigger than the castle. So we just yeah. need more space to have all this stuff. And then beyond that, they, they had a second national museum building, which is now the natural history museum, like that sort of, and the collection of the natural history museum is by far the largest of any of the Smithsonian museums, um, like in the hundreds of millions type, <laughs> type yeah, collection yeah, yeah, size. Yeah. We can we can run some stats later on if you want, but the the point there being that that really the growth of the Smithsonian came from new collections rolling in again and again, people wanting to donate art collections. That was a big thing that started happening. Really, kind of 1920s and onward, several of the galleries, the galleries of art, sort of had their foundation because people had a collection and you know, wanted to donate or that the Smithsonian wanted to obtain. Um, same with aeronautic stuff. They had started collecting all this aeronautic equipment, stored it in a Quonset hut behind the castle for years <laughs> until they developed the National Air Museum, which then of course became the National Air and Space Museum in the 60s when, you know, space became a bigger thing. <laughs> when we found space. Way, yeah, it, exactly. It, 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 by the way, listeners, 
um, uh, particularly for our listeners uh, who live in um, uh, Central Virginia, Northern Virginia, um, it's quite accessible. Um, uh, Eric, where is that located? Oh, the two, you mean the Air and Space Annex? The yes. Udvarhazi um, Annex, which is out at Dulles Airport, has yes. an enormous collection of you know, planes that they did not have to take apart to put into the museum, so. Can I just note for the record that at this point, the Smithsonian is like one of those people who they get a storage unit and then they realize they need another storage unit and then they need a third storage unit because they've got so much stuff that like, it's just, so now you've got this storage unit that's out at Dulles, right? Which is, you know I mean, what we need? Well, that's we need just a big thing. building that we can just roll things into so we don't have to take them apart anymore. Let's get one of those. Okay, let's get one of those. Like, like I that's said, kind order, of fascinating to me that- Borders of the world unite. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's, you know, it's amazing to me how much they have stashed. And, and you said uh, in a previous episode, I believe, that there are 200 affiliates Right. Probably in part because, like, hey man, don't you want to take on this butterfly collection? Hey, could you? <laughs> or could you use for you to, yeah, uh, we yeah. Use for you to hold on to that for a couple of years. Well, I mean, one of like, the places that's crazy. Like, I did not mention when in my first introduction, the other thing that I had formerly done at the Smithsonian was I went to learn photogrammetry, which is three dimensional object creation using a camera um, at the um, Museum Support Center, which is the Smithsonian Museum Support Center in Suitland, Maryland, which is like really is their storage spot. You know, all the museums have storage. Udvarhazi is Air and Space Museum's like annex for both storage and display. But the Museum Support Center is where they have just shelves. It's like twelve miles of shelving. You know, of all it's these warehouse different thirteen. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like you know, end of end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. That's you know, where they put the, that's where that's the, the arc is. So, yeah, they also have all these really <laughs> super cool labs where they, you know, where they're doing preservation work of, you know, all different kinds and, and um, analysis and stuff. So that's where also research is happening. But, but it was cool because I got to go to one of their photography labs that's in this place. And it's, you know, football field size, like four football fields, you know, and then they can extend it like it's just it's designed with a long central kind of corridor and the storage areas and then if they just need another one they just you know can build another <laughs> one and so I don't know how big the property is like at some point that's going to be a problem but but yeah it's it's pretty wild they'll have to go up because they won't be yeah. able to go out right yeah that's fascinating yeah so okay hit me with some some controversial stuff yeah because there's got to be some so, I mean, good, you know, I mean, Augie is interested in, in, you know, tension stuff. So what I think really where a lot of the tension starts coming from is a change in museology, you know, in the practice of museums. And the Smithsonian, of course, for so long was seen as this, you know, attempting to be fairly neutral kind of thing. But museum practice in general has come to realize, as many fields do, libraries and others too, that there sort of is no such thing as neutrality, right? Like you are taking a position on a thing. And pr the, probably the biggest, most famous sort of controversy in our lives, I would guess, it was probably the Enola Gay exhibit decision. So again, Air and Space Museum, 
um, 50 years after the conclusion of World War II, um, they wanted to display the Enola Gay, which was one of the planes that dropped an atomic bomb um, in Hiroshima, uh, sort of, you know, very famously so. The exhibit that they had started to craft for displaying the Enola Gay talked, of course, about the development of the atomic bomb, the plan to drop it, the reason for dropping it, um, but was seen by many people as being sort of way too sympathetic, quote unquote, to the Japanese who, you know, many of whom were, of course, innocent victims of the bomb that hit and sort of paid insufficient attention in the minds of these folks to the idea that what it did do was end the war quickly, save American lives, because now we didn't have to go in on the ground in Japan, you know, and, you know, and so, so there was a huge controversy with the American Legion and with other groups, very upset at what sounded like what they would call revisionist history, right? You know, this yeah. idea that what we're trying to do is make America look bad and downplay the badness from other people. And that of course is a tension that has come again and again in lots of public spheres through time, but it was especially prevalent in the nineties and the Smithsonian sort of starting to take some steps in that direction. Ultimately, they, played that down. They sort of said, okay, never mind. We will just really focus on like the plane itself and sort yeah. of not worry about the consequences. They decided that, you know, we were we were premature in trying to make this, you know, sort of, you know, what's what is the legacy of the Enola Gay argument at the same time as saying, you know, 50 years later, these boys are heroes, you know, and so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. which is yeah. A, a totally understandable problem. But of course, that decision upset a lot of people because they didn't like the yeah. idea of sort of public angst about a display affecting what the curators wanted to say. You know, and so that in and of itself is a like that's a secondary kind of challenge. Well, that kind of thing. so there really are some interesting tensions around that. Um, and I can imagine veterans versus internment camp survivor, like, right? You have a sure. whole bunch of issues there right. of equality and equity that that would be. I mean, even in the '90s when we weren't yet talking about those in those words in those terms right. that's part right. of what you're getting at is this idea of whose story gets told and how it gets told yeah so you got the phenomenon and how it should be portrayed but then as eric pointed out okay to what extent should uh, uh, public opinion no matter who expresses it affect the decisions of you know professional curators okay right i mean it's kind of sort of like you know the debate about to what extent should politicians be able to um affect what bureaucrats report when you know we're talking about a pandemic or climate change right. or right. the condition of the economy or our relationship with various foreign nations right okay should I they mean, be so, able to crush those reports? For, yeah, okay. And so, for the I mean, greater good, like there's this Yeah, so you I mean you got yeah. multiple you got multiple layers of controversy here, right? right? I mean, it was more than just about the Enola Gay, right? right? Well, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Eric. No, I was going to say part of it is, of course, specific to the Smithsonian's role as yes. the national museum, right? And yes. like, because they took the planned parts of some of the exhibit where they had photographs of, you know, people from Japan who, you know, what happened to them when the atomic bomb hit, ended up taking that off this exhibit and taking it to American University and making mounting an exhibit there that was more about the legacy of the bombing. And the response from like the American Legion was, that's fine for, for American University. Like that is not the national museum. So they can sort of make that argument. Our whole problem was that the Smithsonian was saying this. Ah, yeah. Which is really interesting. The I national, yeah. essentially the national museum. Right, like, right. Yeah. Like so, that's the American story. Well, and that kind of brings me to another question, which is, so, okay, I love the British Museum. I'm guilty. I love the British Museum. Nothing in the British Museum belongs there because none of it's British. (laughs) It's all stolen from other countries. When Britain would show up with a big boat and some guns and say, hi, we'd like your country, please. And we're going to take some of your cool stuff and take it back to Britain. And part of that was paternalism, right? We don't think you can take care of your own stuff. Um, Part of that was, hey, that's really cool. And I want to have it in Britain where people can see it. Like we're, quote, civilized people. And what we can argue about what civilized means, hello, soccer thugs, but any, or football thugs, if you want to call them that. (laughs) But like... So that's a really hard place for museums to to walk that line because in defense of the British Museum, some of the stuff that was taken out of, out of Afghanistan, some of the stuff that wasn't taken was destroyed by the Taliban right. Right. because they wanted to be rid of it as historical artifact. And British Museum was saying, if you'd let us take it, if you'd let us take it when we had the chance, it would still exist. So see, we were right, which is a complicated. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not an easy set of questions to answer. Right. 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 I mean, yes. I, 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 I share with my students the fact that uh, about 15 years ago, uh, a bunch of us when, uh, who, who were teaching at the Wilder School went to Russia, uh, went to the Soviet Union, St. Petersburg, um, uh, uh, Russia, and we went to the Hermitage. Right. And I've had a couple of students who were like, yeah, but the Hermitage, Hermitage, you know, has a whole bunch of paintings that they stole from, you know, people during wartime or from right. other countries. Right. And, you know, and, and, and they were correct. Okay. On the other hand, okay. Do I ignore the paintings? Right. Right. Okay? As somebody who likes to view, you know, artwork, you know, um, do I ignore them? Right um because you know i've learned so much by going to art museums even though i'm not an art expert right right um um does the museum you know for instance with the enola gay exhibit you know does it pull its punches okay um because again as somebody who studies politics you know some of the decisions to drop the bomb okay 
was in part political. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. And um, um and viewed through <clears throat> the modern lens, awful. Right. Yes. Right? right. Like there's there's who whose lives matter here. Right. Is the is the question that's right. yes. do we worry about Japanese well, lives or American lives? And I guess what I'm getting at, Eric, is does the Smithsonian have parts of it co its collection that really ought to be given back to other people or you know what I mean? Like the British, right, like every right. so often Greece calls London, <laughs> uh, sure. calls England and says, hey, would you mind giving back our statues? And London says, I'm sorry, we have a bad connection. I can't hear you. And they hang up. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Like, right. is so there you, anything there, like that? There is. I mean, the biggest analogy I would say is actually with Native American goods and remains. So one of the things that happened in the 80s at the Smithsonian was, you know, a a touring group of Native American dignitaries got behind the scene, you know, they were getting a behind the scenes tour. And at some point in the course of the tour, they saw, you know, big storage area and said, oh my gosh, there must be, you know, so many materials in this area. And they said, oh no, those are the, the indigenous people's bones that we have still, like 30,000, 35,000 <gasps> skeletons. Whoa you know, 13,000 of which were North American Indian and they were taken aback by this realization. I mean, of course, people knew that, that collectors had collected all these things, but just the scale that the Smithsonian had of those, of funerary goods, you know, that, that came out of graves, you know, all that kind of thing, um, sparked a big controversy in the late 80s, again, with the Smithsonian um, as sort of the idea of the National Museum of American Indian was also starting to come to formation. Um, and so actually what you find in the act that established the National Museum of American Indian was a requirement that the Smithsonian take a look at all of these funerary goods of the human remains of related cultural artifacts of great significance and work to repatriate them back to either descendant tribes or sort of culturally descendant tribe, um, you know, yeah. tribes, families, if they can identify, because of course some things are you could identify down to an individual um, even still. And so wow. just trying to, to sort of work on that. So as part of the, the act that established the National Museum of American Indian, the Smithsonian was required to do it. Then a year later, NAGPRA, the, um, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was established for any museum or cultural institution that's receiving federal funding is required to sort of go uh, through this review process, reviewing what they have, okay. who it might get returned to, whether, you know, a claim against your collection is sort of, they have to judge, you know, it's sort of legitimacy, but they have some criteria for that sort of thing. Um, and so, Primarily the Smithsonian, it was the National Museum of American Indian, the, the uh, Natural History Museum, because they have so many artifacts that were related to this in this collection of, of um, human remains and skulls and all this kind of thing were part of their collection. So they have uh, a real target for that and the American History Museum. So those three kind of have the main work to do that kind of thing. But it's exactly the same phenomenon that happened, you know, with Greece and the British Museum is like, Y'all showed up, did not ask permission, basically dug right. up graves, raided these places, took our artwork, 
you know, and of course the Smithsonian made the same arguments in Congress was, you know, we can you know, protect them, we, we can care of it, them. protecting it has such research value, it's so important, you know, science keeps changing so we can do things like comparisons between, you know, genetic markers then and modern, you know, Native American health conditions, you know, I mean, like lots of, of that kind of argument, but in the end, the cultural kind of the, the, the weight, the sort of moral weight yeah, carried yeah. it further, I think. Yeah, but it's an ongoing question in in archaeology is, sure. you know, who who has a right to and who can preserve who can preserve things better. Right. And is that should that carry the day? And in the case of remains, I would think no, except that there's a part of me that's like, yes, but I just went to an exhibit with Egyptian remains. Right. 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 So, what? you know, and, and, do, and whole... then to Augie's point, do you not go because you don't want to support, the, you know what I mean? You don't want to support right. the institution, but by the same token. How do I learn? How do I how, learn and right and how, pay how honor? I, yeah, I mean, how do I possibly, uh, you know, become sympathetic and understanding, okay, right. without this kind of exposure? Right. Right. Okay. I mean, one of the one of the things that museums have, of course, started to do more and more is to involve the cultures that they are interpreting. Right. Okay. So yeah. we have a National Museum of American Indians, which was basically formed after many conversations with tribes and peoples across the country, and they're being hired to be the staff to run the place. The National Museum of African American History and Culture, same sort of idea, right? And a lot of historic sites are doing things where they talk to descendant communities of enslaved people at that site to help bring those voices in. So again, I mean, it is a challenge, right? Because you still want to tell the story of the thing or the place or the history, but not for somebody else. It's sort of right. with somebody else, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Right. Empowering yeah. those individuals right. to tell their own stories. Right. So I, I know there's a group and I want you to say the name oh. on this podcast because isn't this a group of of like Royal Society kind of guys? Yeah. So yes, you're talking the Megatherium Club. So and Megatheria, Megatherium was an extinct ground sloth. Um, <laughs> you know, found whatever early 19th century. You know, claws were found and the skeleton was found and that sort of thing. Um, it was yeah. And so so. <laughs> glad you circled back to them because they are some of my favorite people in the Smithsonian. They were basically when I mentioned that that Spencer Fullerton Baird, the second secretary, so the assistant secretary under Joseph Henry, the first secretary of the Smithsonian, he was the collector of collectors. This is a group of his collectors. Like they were basically a bunch of young guys who lived in the Smithsonian castle primarily. Occasionally one of them had a house right near the Smithsonian that he rented and had parties there, but they, you know, it was like, it was like a fraternal society almost of scientists where, you know, the, the, um, what makes you cool is not being cool. What makes you cool is being a good scientist. And so what they would typically do is they went out to the field, you know, out West to, to other places, did their collections sort of in, you know, temperate weather. And then in winter, 
they would all come back to the Smithsonian and do all the cataloging and work, you know, and some of them were pretty much only field folks and some of them were pretty much only living at the Smithsonian, but they named themselves the Megatherium Club um, and, you know, came up with a call like the theoretical call of the Megatheria or Megatherium so that they would yell it down the halls of the Smithsonian, you know, and, and it's always written as how, how, so some kind of howling sounds, you know, is how they wrote it down. They would engage in what they called conduction, which was basically conversation and drinks, like, you know, so, so they would write to each other and be like, you know, Kennecott is coming back, great conduction underway, you know, and so there's conversations, drinking, oysters, um, and then you know, they sort of ended up like many of them became really leading light in natural history circles, especially in the sort of Civil War, post-Civil War era. So this is like 1857 to 1866 was kind of when they were there. And they, of course, drove Joseph Henry crazy. I mean, his family lived at the castle. They were like doing sack races down the hallways in the Smithsonian because they're, you know, young men, mostly. So not all of them. Some of them were actually kind of crotchety older guys. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, so they, they sort of launched, like they had built this society of people that just loved this kind of stuff. And then... Unfortunately, several of them met tragic ends because that was often the case when you were out in the field doing stuff. So Robert Kennicott was one of them who was helping explore, you know, Russian Alaska and ended up basically dying on the Yukon River. Um, he was succeeded as the head of the Chicago Academy of Sciences by another member of the Megatheria who um, was there when the Great Chicago Fire hit and like all the you know, papers were burned and displayed. So oh. yeah, so it was it was not a happy ending, but as a sort of bright light during the, um, especially during the Civil War and especially driving Joseph Henry crazy and sort of, you know, they would woo his daughters and they were like, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. I mean, the, that they, I think would make a great movie or book, right? Oh like, yeah, that, that you know. sounds like... So. That could that. be the Ocean's Eleven of its day, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. An all-star cast doing cool things together. I mean, think like Robert Downey Jr. You know, that's kind of the the uh, vibe yeah. that you get. Actually, yeah. one of them looks a lot like him, so I keep thinking that every time I see uh, him. <laughs> okay, so before we go, we have to do actual business. Sorry, absolutely. Which is so? How much does it cost to get into the Smithsonian's? It costs, well, it costs nothing. It is free, of course, because we have all paid our taxes and we are, <laughs> we are supporting this kind of thing. But that is one of those things that those of us who grew up in Northern Virginia, I think, or in the DC area, always get confused when we go visit other museums because they aren't free. <laughs> so going yeah. to the Smithsonian is free to get into any of the museums um, when they're open. And that we'll talk about in a second because they are starting to open now. Um, there are occasionally charges for special exhibits. You know, if there's some, some special thing, they may do some charging for that, but the, the entrance fee is free. Okay. Yeah. And you get to them, I, they're downtown Washington, most of them, not all of yeah. them, but a lot so of I them, think... right? So you probably want to take the Metro in or, because right. parking, she is evil in 
um, exactly. along the mall unless you yeah. arrive at 4 a.m and just sleep in your car until That's, something opens i have been tempted to do that I actually keep talking about getting like a 15 passenger van and saying anybody who wants to come to the smithsonian jump in the van we'll drive up from richmond and, you know but yes the the mall is where most of the museums are um, but not all of them there are some scattered elsewhere Jealous. in dc and then also outside of dc um, but the, the the Smithsonian Castle, some of the big hitters like the Air and Space Museum, the National History Museum, the Museum of African American History and Culture, the American Indian uh, Museum. So those are right on the mall, as are several of the art galleries. Um, and so those are easily accessible through a couple different metro stops, which is the subway system in D.C. for people who may not be familiar with the area. Um, but of course, it is possible to drive downtown and find a parking lot somewhere that you pay for all day parking. <laughs> and then the, their hours are posted on their websites, right? Because yes. they're different depending on each. Yeah, that, that is correct. Building. So if you go to si.edu, which is the Smithsonian's website, um, and just click on the visit kind of area, one of the things that you'll find is the... Um, current listing of what's open and you'll also see the fact that through june july and august they are rolling more of the museums open they shut down totally through for a big chunk of 2020 because of covid some reopened for a while and then closed again and then yeah. now eight or nine are currently open and again there are 19 total museums 20 including the zoo um you know and so several are open one of the things to note now is that currently um, all of the Smithsonian museums require a time ticket access. So you do have to jump and get, so don't just show up currently and hope that you're gonna get into a museum. Um, you have to go online or probably have a phone number to call to, to get a timed entry pass to a museum. I would not be shocked given just the, the fact that sort of COVID um, restrictions are lifting left and right, you know, that that may change soon, but the I guess the best advice I would recommend is go to the website, see how see how to visit the museum of your choice currently. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, that's just a matter of crowd control, right? That's right. just because exactly. they're trying not to have five thousand people quashed into an elevator all at once, sort of breathing on each other. Yeah. Um, uh, and I would like to note for the record, by the way, that their web address is si.edu, not mm -hmm. si.com or si.org. I love it. They are considered an educational institution. And as we know, ICANN is pretty serious about you using the proper domain and they will shut you down if you don't use the proper domain. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I um, do believe si.com is Sports Illustrated. Oh. <laughs> ah. That's, okay. That's a very different experience. That's good to know. Um, and so, just one last thing: you sure. can. They're all, aren't they all ADA compliant now? I, as far as I know, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that definitively because I know some of them are in old buildings. You know, some of the museum buildings are. I know they have done a lot of retrofitting to try to make them so, but I, you know, without checking, I would not say definitively that is the case. I'm quite sure that is their intent you know, even if they haven't gotten there with every, every building out there. So again, something people might need to check on if yes. they have, yeah. if yeah. they have uh, compliance needs. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And there are cafes, right? There are cafes and yep. stalls and stuff where you Yeah. And actually some of the museums have 
quite sort of famous cafe. I mean, like they're they're not just like horrible, like rubbery <laughs> hot dog, you know, kind of grossness. Like there's some that are really quite good at actually National Museum of American Indian is one of the ones that I've been to most recently where, you know, all of the dining options are basically different native cuisines and it's all really, you oh. know, it's delicious and well, well prepared. And of course, also still trying to move crowds through quickly, which is a weird <laughs> balance, I think, for every museum cafe. Yeah, so like, enjoy we want that. You to enjoy now this art, artistic food, <laughs> go fast. <You> know? <laughs> like, but yeah, they have, you know, many have, not every museum, but many museums have cafes, have gift shops. Um, and that's, you know, of course, an increasing part of Smithsonian's sort of, um, we were talking budget earlier, a chunk of their budget comes from that, from Smithsonian Magazine, from uh, the Smithsonian Channel on TV, so stuff like that. Um, but yeah, yeah I'm glad so, you mentioned the uh, magazine because uh, um, I'm a faithful reader of the Smithsonian as Magazine. Am I. Uh, yeah. They they have some really good articles, um, and uh, uh, they're usually longer pieces, so you can really go ahead if you get interested in a particular subject, you can really um, sink your teeth into it. So uh, um, I highly recommend the magazine, uh, um, uh, the Smithsonian Magazine. Good I stuff. Agree. And yeah. the government publishing office actually publishes um, many of the Smithsonian's reports because of the because of the way they're funded. Yeah. They're funded, right. and it comes through the gov government publishing office. So if you live someplace other than the Virginia D.C. area. You should ask at your local library um, if they have the Smithsonian documents because most of your depository libraries will. Yeah, and, there... and on that note too, just let me mention real fast that that the like all of the museums have very robust websites. So if you're not in the DC area or not able to to visit one of the museums in person that you're interested in, go to the website and you know many of them have information about exhibits that are there in person also online exhibits and also ways to sort of look at the collection, you know, and sort of just see objects and information about objects and stuff like that. And that varies, of course, as to what that means. You know, National Postal Museum is going to look very different than the Freer Gallery, you know, or that kind of thing. So, yeah. And as a last plug, as a librarian, there is a book called Murder at the Smithsonian, and I cannot remember the author, the author's name is escaping me now. Oh my goodness. Um, Eric, are you looking it up? That's what I am doing right now because Thank I am a librarian. And it's, <laughs> and it's fantastic. It does actually some really interesting descriptions of an exhibit. It's not a real exhibit at the Smithsonian, but it is an interesting, the, the Smithsonian is a plot point. In the, in, the, in the book. Margaret Truman, thank you. Yeah. She did a whole series of murder at the Supreme Court, murder at, you know, various yes, places yes. in D.C., and one of them is the Smithsonian. So I would suggest to you that might be a little bit of beach reading for you there. <laughs> they're not particularly gory. They're not particularly gross. Well, I so, mean, in, 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 in that series of books, uh, uh, listeners, for those of you who like to get quick bites of history, or fascinating aspects of, 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 of the history of various well-known institutions. Okay, that's, you, her books, you know, do that, right? I mean, cause let's face it. I mean, you know, the three of us will go ahead and geek out on, on the Smithsonian for instance, or, you know, the Library of Congress, or in my case, the Supreme Court building, 
But for most folks, okay, <laughs> they would rather have it be served as perhaps like an appetizer to something else that they can consume. And those books are not a bad, um, shall we say, appetizer. Well, and Margaret Truman was the daughter of President Truman. Yes. So she has intimate uh, knowledge of, um, yes. of, of Washington and its environs. Eric, thank you so much. This has been fun. Um, and yeah. like and always, want, we've learned a lot. Yeah, and Eric, you know, thank you very much for um, entertaining uh, uh, Nia and, and my digressions, because as you talk, Okay, all of a sudden, you know, uh, listeners, you, you can't see our faces, but, you know, uh, you know, you can all of a sudden, Eric will be, you know, saying something, and I'm about ready to launch through the computer, right? <laughs> or, or Nia just gets this huge big grit on her face, okay, and she starts doing this with her fingers. Yeah, I start okay. it's, rubbing my fingers together like a yeah, modified steeple, right? <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. And, and and you floored us several times. I had no idea that there were that many remains in the Native American. Like yeah. that's right. insane, right? So yeah. I can see where those those controversial things come from, but also just the the desire of the museum to do the right thing and to be as neutral as it can be while doing the right thing, right? Which is, right. you can't always balance those perfectly either. So yeah. thank you so much. Well, thank you all really seriously for that. It's been, of course, a joy. So I really appreciate the invite, so. And if if you're a VCU student and you want to know more, um, you could always find Eric in the workshop. Um, that is definitely true. And he will be happy to talk to you about all the equipment in the workshop and then about national parks and the Smithsonian and anything else that comes up. They are, shop. <laughs> they are an interesting crowd down in the workshop and they know all kinds of cool stuff. Yes, they do. So thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you both so much. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.